0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Very
1: good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. Note that if you would like to send us your Bible questions, you can do so through our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to a screen where we are not only broadcasting from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S., as well as Pacific Before Daylight Savings Time. But also, we will have a window for you on the right-hand side of the screen to enter in your questions in the comments. If you would like to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Twitter is ScottR4H at Twitter.com and if you'd like to join us on those venues, you'll be notified when we are going live. However, if you aren't notified that we are going live on any of those platforms and it's not a fault of our technical incompetence and by our, I mean mine, uh, we will still be available on our website. Make sure that that's your main ministry media meeting place. As far as how you engage with us, YouTube, of course, is a luxury and Facebook is a privilege we want to use while we can, but if we can't, if we are taken down for any reason, note that our ministry will still be reaching out through our website. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com, and if you want to stop by at least once on our website, we'll have that spelled out for you properly at the bottom of the screen, which once again is at calvarychristianfellowship.com. We're looking forward to engaging with you, and note that the reason we are setting ourselves aside is to answer sincere. Bible questions. That is the standard for which we will be receiving those questions. They are sincere, they are about the Bible, and they are asked in the form of a question. If you would like to ask any other themed reform questions, note that there are places and times for that, just not this one. So we are looking forward to engaging with you on those topics as well as to begin the broadcast to give you time to phrase your questions and send them to us with current events and uh, the very much significance of that, at least for those living in the United States, but also to equip those around the world listening for a very pressing issue, which we are about to get into. But before we would even dare, we want to make sure that we set this time aside in prayer, make sure that the Holy Spirit equips us to speak with His voice, not with what's in our heads. So why don't we do that? Dad, thank you for the chance to be, have the honor and the privilege to speak on behalf of you, to share your word to not only be filled with your spirit but equipped for every good work I ask that you would give peter and i not only your heart but also your voice in speaking to your people that they would be given ears to hear and as well hearts ready to receive your word if there are those listening who don't yet know you that you would continue to work on their hearts as you continue to develop and grow in ours as well we thank you for this work to continue and ask that it would ultimately lead to your glory We pray this in jesus name amen All right, so regarding current events, there was not a pronouncement, not a decision. But a leak of a decision that was supposedly made by the Supreme Court, more information is coming as it goes along. And of course, we don't want to take at face value hearsay or the things that are spread among social media. But regarding the issue of abortion, this seems to be a major step. What we do know, or at least what we have been told that we're supposed to know, is that one of the aides or a member of the Supreme Court and their representative, Representatives or someone in their office leaked a document noting a decision regarding the Roe v. Wade case, which essentially redefined and privatized the act of abortion to a right of privacy around 19 or in the 1970s. Now, this has been essentially a beachhead through which all pro-abortion legislation has been not enforced, but definitely popularized throughout our culture, and those on the side of abortion in this matter consider it their, I guess, Ark of the Covenant, if you will. If we lose this, we lose everything. And the prospect of not yet losing that power, but the idea that it could be lost, has set people up in a frenzy. On both sides, people are either celebrating too soon or rioting for the same reason and in the same time. But the point being made is not to celebrate too early, not even to announce things that we don't yet actually know. But we want to equip those who are not only listening but want to know where they ultimately fall on this issue with as much information as possible now that these conversations are being had again. So regarding the issue of abortion, first of all, Peter, when it comes to this, obviously saying it this many times means we'll probably get kicked off social media, but we'll keep talking anyway. What are some of the main issues regarding this issue that we need to be prepared for and the issue as a whole, biblically?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's a very good idea to try to orient your thought process to a biblical framework whenever things are happening within, uh, within politics, within the news, things like that. We tend to get sucked into kind of the secular dialogue, <clears throat> and we lose sight of God, we lose sight of the Bible, and we lose sight of a moral framework that really helps us out And it could kind of put us into a very frenzied or even anxious mindset that's not very good for us or, like you said, maybe even overly excited for some of the wrong reasons. So we need to be a little bit more level-headed and understand exactly what is on the table and how we as Christians should see it. So if this is overturned, which I think there's a fairly good chance that it might be uh, if things continue the way that it is, that wouldn't actually outlaw abortion. All it would do is it would take it from a federal issue to a state's issue. So because the way our government works in the United States is that we have the Constitution, which legislates things on a federal level for all the states, but anything that's not really contained within the Constitution, the states have the right to be able to legislate that within their own purview. The founders did that intentionally because they knew that it's much easier for a state to agree on an issue than for an entire country to agree on an issue. And it's also not a very good idea for the dense population centers of the United States, namely California and New York, to be able to make all the decisions for everyone else in the country. So it's better for the states themselves to be able to decide these things on their own merits and for their own purposes. Roe versus Wade was in, uh, it, it was definitely illegal. No matter where you stand on Roe versus Wade, whether you are pro choice or pro life, you have to admit that it is an illegal overreach of power. That is not what the Supreme Court was ever intended to do. The Supreme Court was not meant to legislate. The Supreme Court was supposed to interpret. And what they did in Roe versus Wade is they actually legislated, they actually created a constitutional right to abortion, using a very vague clause in the 14th Amendment, saying that it was a right of privacy that the woman had to be able to plan her family out the way that she could. This would just overturn that and send the issue back to the state. So as Christians, all of that legalese and stuff like that, there's a couple ways that we can look at that that would really help us out. The first question is, is this an ethical thing to happen? Is this a good thing to happen? Now. Your dad actually just put up a tweet for anyone who wants to look at it. It's uh, very good and just very concise because it's Twitter. And it just gives four reasons as to why a Christian should be pro-life. So I would encourage you guys to take a look at that, read through it, and, and think through it as well. Pray about it. doesn't make sense. But an uh, argument against it, right? So some would say, okay, I cede the point to you. You are killing an unborn child. All right. However, if you allow for abortion to be made illegal in various states let's say it's not over the whole country but in various states it will be made illegal and there will be more stringent laws placed upon it you are now putting women in the position where they have to seek out back alley illegal abortions for their unwanted children and you are now putting women in danger now uh off the top when you hear it that way you might say well that's a dumb argument you know like why why would that matter at all but then you'll get a number and they'll say well Prior to Roe versus Wade, do you know how many abortions were were practiced every year illegally? And they'll give you the number of 2 million. And they'll say thousands of women died in these illegal abortions. So the kids are still dying, right? The kids are still being aborted. And the mom's dying, too, because they're seeking this back alley abortion. Well, uh, let's— just assume for a second that the stats are right. They're wrong, and I'll give you some data. data. I wonder how they gathered yeah. those numbers of all of these illegal under-the-cover
1: <laughs> abortions under that were performed. Yeah. <laughs> and they took a poll and survey and said, oh, yeah, I committed a felony act of uh, first-degree murder at that time, and that is something I'm proud of. Yeah. No, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're being given.
2: Yeah, so I'll actually give you – I'll give it to you now because it's just it, – this is from The Washington Post, which everyone knows is a very right-wing – Pro-life outlet, obviously. He's (laughs) being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic. This is probably one of the most left-wing outlets that there are. So we know that this is not a biased source towards conservatism or pro-life values. They just are writing an article about the, uh, the truth or the falsehood about this particular claim. So in this article, which you could find on their website, it says, A 1978 study found that deaths from abortion declined even more rapidly after 1965 be- because of more effective forms of contraception and increased availability of legal abortion. However, the CDC began collecting data on abortion mortality in 1972, the year before Roe. Was decided in 1972, the number of deaths in the United States from legal abortions was 24 and from illegal abortions was 39. This is according to the CDC. And this so, was before Roe versus Wade. It was before Roe versus Wade. So the reason why there was such an, uh, an intense amount of people who were dying in legal abortions and illegal abortions was because sulfa drugs, uh, basically antibiotics and things like that, were just being discovered and widely utilized when it came to this kind of surgery. Abortion is a surgery they are going in and they are killing a child and they are removing its remains from your body it is a surgery and if you don't have proper antiseptics you could definitely get an infection you could definitely die and you're all but guaranteed
1: to be rendered infertile because of the damage that is performed to the uterine wall and the woman is also put at extreme risk because of the loss of fluids most forms of late-term abortion require you to
2: give birth anyway but without the proper care given to an actual childbirth and on it goes exactly and that's why you don't see a huge differential between the number of women who died from legal and illegal abortions there's a separation of about 15 which is not huge Uh, So the numbers are just pulled out of whole cloth. They were trying to extrapolate from some numbers that were collected early on, and then they ignore the reason as to why so many of the abortions failed. But that aside, let's grant the point. Okay, fine. Let's say thousands of women will die every year because we are making abortion illegal. That's totally untrue. That's not what's happening right now. But let's just grant all of that. Okay. Does that still mean that as Christians we should consider it? Right. So as Christians— Can we even consider allowing something evil to take place in order to prevent something that we deem to be more evil from happening? Now, you may be surprised to to hear this, but the Bible does allow for that kind of thinking. So we we don't have what's called deontological ethics in the Bible. What that means is that de obviously meaning the name for God. This is the idea that ethics are kind of brought down from on high and we follow them rigidly. There's no room for any type of... Uh, flexibility or any type of alternative scenarios in which these laws could be ignored or rendered a little bit more useless given particular considerations right so if you want an example of deontological ethics look at islam right in islam you can't really mold sharia law very much you can't perfect what's already perfect that's right. Is incredibly rigid. It is meant to be understood as it is. And bidah, or innovation, is a capital offense. That's right. Now, when it comes to the Bible, what we have is we have these very strong and very generalized ethics throughout the Bible. But when it comes to the actual law, specifics, the specifics do have some flexibility. Uh, so, for instance, even Jesus, when he was, talk, when he was questioned about abortion, He mentioned that the law was actually given because of the hardness of the heart of men. But from the beginning, it was not so. So in other words, if the law was perfect, right, divorce. So if the law was perfect, this is the argument from the Pharisees. If the law is perfect, like Islam claims, then why would something imperfect be codified within it, right? Which would be divorce. And Jesus already made the, the claim that divorce is an imperfect, unlawful, bad thing to have happen. So in
1: accommodation of the fact that bad things will happen in a marriage, something that was in a perfect world intended to establish and model the relationship we have with God because of our problems is accommodated to have a severance, something that is less good than if it were to remain. Now, the argument then would jump to say, okay, since we don't live in a perfect world, just like with with, uh, the marriage issue, Mm -hmm. and bad things will happen— Is there grounds for a woman to have an abortion as a moral alternative, a lesser evil to the extent in regards to allowing that baby to go to term if it would result in the harm to the mother, which by the way is not the abortions they are arguing for. Right. But we'll make that point again. Grant, it's so, only it's always, that it's, <laughs> so we, we have, have to, to grant a lot of things in <laughs> order to, we have to, to pretend have 100% argument. of the time, all right. the time, that it's only ever because of rape, incest, or complications for the mother that put her life specifically at risk. Now, a uh, That's going to eliminate 99.8% of all abortions performed in this country and around the world as well. What then does this mean? Well, we're going to have to ask, is that in fact a lesser evil or a greater evil? And is the thinking sound in saying, is this a meaningful accommodation as a solution?
2: So, yeah. So looking at the example that we're giving of of divorce for a second. Divorce is an evil, but when the choice is between continue to have a marriage in which a spouse is perpetually cheating on their partner and ignoring the marital vows and dragging the family through that kind of infidelity and blatant sin, is it better to continue to have someone bound to somebody who is performing this type of horrible behavior? Or is it better to sever the marriage, to sever the union, to sever the covenant as a result of that behavior? And obviously God would fall on the, yeah, it's better, it's not good, But it is better for the marital covenant to be null and void as a result of this kind of egregious behavior in order to preserve the sanity and the well-being of the person who has had this kind of behavior inflicted upon them. Now when it comes to abortion, can we make a similar argument? Well, I think it's very clear that we can't. Why? Because we're not talking about something that is better in the instance of a marriage. If somebody performs an abortion, they are killing an unborn child. Now, the argument, in order for the argument to really work, what you'd have to prove is that making abortion illegal would have no effect on the amount of abortions committed every year. So, in other words, if somebody can say, yes, if you made abortion illegal, the exact same amount of children will be murdered. They're just going to be murdered in illegal ways and unsavory ways, and the mothers are at risk as well. uh, Then they might have somewhat of an argument, but I'm going to push against that as well in a second. But because that's not true because it's not true because it will have an effect you can't make the argument you cannot justify the murder of unborn children in order to make it easier for women to commit these atrocities in general so let me give you a a current example a modern example It wasn't too long ago that New York created these facilities where people can go and shoot up drugs and the argument was very similar yes doing drugs is bad for you yes we shouldn't promote it however people are going to these really unsavory drug dens and they're getting STDs and various things like that from using dirty needles. Wouldn't it be better if we provide a safe place with clean needles for these people to use the various drugs so that, yes, they're doing something bad, but we're providing them with a place where they can maybe, you know, not incur the dangers of illicit drug use. Now, the obvious argument, I mean, the obvious eventuality of this type of legislation is not that drug use went down, it went up. When you make sin easier, guess what? People do it more. And it's still sin. And it's still sin. So, and I'll talk about that in a second as well. So, but from a perspective of just consequentialism, making our society better, it doesn't make sense to make abortion easier and more sterile because you are incentivizing it to happen more often if you want to discourage a behavior, you make it as difficult as possible. This is, again, why we have laws against, say, murder. Do people still murder even though we have murder laws? Of course they do. Nobody made the argument when they enshrined these particular laws in the Constitution or the particular local uh, legislators, no one made the argument of, well, if we make murder illegal, nobody will murder again. Nobody made that argument. The argument is if you want to live in a society That has fewer murders you must show murder as being wrong and you must punish it when it happens and it has to be done irrespective of the effect that it's having on the overall amount of murder so in other words nobody talks about getting rid of murder sentences because they say well you know they're going to do it anyway And now we have an over-incarceration problem within the prison system, so wouldn't it be better if we just made it legal and therefore less people would go to prison and we can kind of work on their reformation in some other way without sending them to prison? And the answer is obviously no. It just doesn't work. It's not true. It's not effective. For a Christian, we could easily stand by and say, no, we want to make abortion as uncomfortable, as unsterile, as dangerous, dare I say, as physically possible to discourage someone from making this really tragic and devastating choice. Because again, murder, especially murder of a child, and beyond that, I'll go one step further, murder of your child would probably rank up there as the most egregious sin that somebody could commit. I can't think of one that is... Worse, kill me rather than my kid. If those are the options, that's right. You know, for for me to murder any child is horrible. But for me to kill my own child, I feel like people would have a natural response to that that's much more egregious. And again, we, we don't have to wonder. We know because there are cases where parents do kill their own children, and they are seen as the worst scum of the human race for good reason, right? So one such example it just happened. This woman's about to get the death penalty. She had a two-year-old who basically was abusing, beating, biting this child, Beat them so bad that broke out her the rib cage, broke out. I, when I read the story, I was crying because I have a two-year-old, and I could only imagine this amount of damage being done to her. Uh, the, the coroner that found the body of the child said it was the worst case of uh, abuse that she had ever seen. Now, there's a reason why it had such a guttural reaction across the country when we heard it. Not only is it the murder of a child, which is already bad enough, But it was that woman's child. It was her daughter that she did these things to. We recognize that as being horribly, horribly egregious. Because of that, again, since the severity of sin is so high, there's not really a higher sin out there that I can think of off the top of my head. Because of that, it makes no sense to make it easier. If any sin deserves to be made difficult and demonized, it is this one for sure. Now, let's go to the second point, which is, Even if it didn't have an effect, is it good for a country? What does it say for our morality? What does it say for us as a people if we allow an egregious sin to happen and be legalized simply because it has a good effect? So to put it another way, and I'll I'll toss this one to you, Sean, is it good for us as Christians to allow that kind of depravity within our country in the name of, let's say, just freedom of speech or freedom of practicing whatever people want, liberty, that kind of thing.
1: Well, I guess you have to ask the question, if we're going to encourage freedom as a virtue, is that going to include the freedom to be selfish? Is that going to include the freedom to commit atrocities without a second
2: thought? And will it include the freedom of the child?
1: Yes, and that's what's ultimately key here. You can say, well, your freedom's invalidated because your freedom of speech is actually violence. You're inciting. Anyone can redefine something in order to justify their actions. What needs to be understood is a foundational truth truth and law. And if life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness are not what are preserved as is written and documented and interpreted in our constitution, then we don't have anything to stand for. But in the same sense, a nation is composed of individuals, and if the individuals have no framework by which they interpret their own ethics, then it's going to be just as easy to justify the most horrific things to themselves and upon each other. If we don't have a starting point, we don't have a positive end point either, Mm. and that's the key that we need to drive home. If this issue is made the end-all, be-all, and it's not even the actual issue that's being addressed, what's actually happening is what needs to be understood. What is actually taking place? At this moment, nothing. A document has been leaked that hasn't yet been passed into law, and they are trying to manipulate it being rescinded. If the possibility of a loss of power in order to use this essentially internet meme equivalent of a legislation that is not only misunderstood by Christians, but especially those who are in favor of it, then we need to, and by the way, make the distinction very intentionally, we need to be able to have a love for the truth that surpasses even our own desire for peace with our fellow man. Because when we look at, say, for instance, passages that would encourage as much as depends on you live peaceably with all men, what is dependent on that? Well, first of all, I need to live consistently with my Christian convictions and the life of a child, the preservation of the life of my child, and the popularization the normalization of parents being able to preserve the well-being and encourage the safety of their children are two things that we want to encourage if on the other hand we're going to say so you're saying that anyone who's not a Christian should be thrown into a concentration camp atheists did that not Christians but that aside if this was is the actual issue what can we actually say for ourselves There are truth statements that are made in the Bible that inform my ethics regarding how a parent should treat their child, how a parent should view their child. And if you say, well, God takes the life of people, therefore parents can take the lives of their children. Good heavens, what is the matter with you? If we're talking about the By the way, the
2: same logic would validate murder. Yeah. (laughs) Right, so— so, or killing your child when they're five.
1: And that's why we want to be consistent. So just again, for the sake of time, let me just run through a series of passages that notes what we need to have on hand when these and conversations quick before come before
2: you up. do that, um, I, I just wanted to establish one more thing. This is kind of uh, something... That's deep, it's personal, but I, I just feel like it's important to say during this time period. Some might say, well, is it right to go after the mother who's doing this, right? Is it, is it right to, to say what it is, right, the murder of her child, and to establish it that way? Isn't that damaging to people's psyche? Um, as someone who has actually gone to war and has seen murder happen, right, has seen actually intentional taking of other people's lives occur in front of me, I'll tell you, It does no good to the psyche to convince yourself that your actions were justified, unavoidable, and therefore righteous or good. It does no good to the psyche. There's a reason why so many veterans struggle with PTSD, even though their actions are being justified for them in front of other people. Um, there, there are definitely – now, I'm not saying that the murder that happens in war is equivalent to the murder that happens within home. Let's say me just like aggressively taking the life of someone for no reason. But the taking of a life occurs and moral lines are crossed even in wartime. And they have to be – those kind of complexities and nuances within those moral decisions have to be looked at in the right context. Deluding Dis- yourself is actually one of the causes of PTSD. When you commit a high moral act that is wrong and you know it's wrong, if you try to delude yourself and trick yourself into believing that it wasn't actually wrong, it actually creates PTSD. That's actually what starts it. So it is not actually compassionate to tell women you haven't done anything wrong. That actually perpetuates their psychological damage. If they want to be able to heal and recover, they have to first accept what they've done And then seek forgiveness because as egregious as the sin is, there is no sin that cannot be covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. All of us, all of us are sinners before a holy and just God. All of us deserve to be apart from him. And so no matter what decisions you've made regarding your children and your pregnancies, all of us equally need the salvation and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But the good news is, is that it's open and available for us. So that's how I found healing psychologically. It was through truth. It was through understanding, and it was through forgiveness. It wasn't through self-delusion. So I just want to lay that out there. But let, let's go through some Bible passages to reiterate this point.
1: To emphasize the reasons why we come to these conclusions. And note, it's not a matter of, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I wouldn't enforce my values on someone else. That's not pro-life at all. Right. And if you say, well, I don't want to legislate morality. That's what legislation is, right. the enforcement of morality. Right. Well, I don't want to impose my morality on someone else. Well. Well, that's what a law is, morality. If it's not yours, then you're promoting and desiring something to be promoted that is immoral, according right. to your and, view.
2: And again, I've said this before, but the right to life is the most fundamental right that someone can have. If we're denying a group of people the right to life within our country, the government has no purpose anymore. Right? What's the purpose of any legislation in the government if it's not upholding someone's right to life?
1: Which is when we have to ask the question, what constitutes a life? Well, because the Bible recognizes both pre- and post-birth, the... Sanctity, the identity, and the value of human beings, then I cannot reconcile that, or at least I shouldn't reconcile that with any of the pro abortion legislations or arguments. First of all, we need to ask is there a limit on the trimesters as we determine them in the modern day? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, going from verse 36 all the way to 44, we have an example of a first trimester child. They obviously don't use the word trimester in the text, but a child under three months in development, and a child within the second trimester, post six months of development. So someone showing someone isn't, but both are recognized as in mama. They are not physically born yet. The first is identified as our Lord by the uh, woman who is speaking from the position of the second trimester pregnancy. So listen to the mother, folks. Elizabeth says, how is it that the mother of my Lord... Notice she's being identified as a mother, not a potential mother once she gives birth to the child, and also being identified as what? The the mother of her Lord, that he bears that identity despite being still in the womb. If there is no identity to be had before birth, or at least within the first trimester, then Elizabeth is speaking six months too early. But for some reason, Scripture, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our authority says otherwise. Likewise, the child... In Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy at the presence not of Mary though Roman Catholics may try to argue that but of Jesus and that was what caused him to be filled with the Spirit so capable of having a spiritual experience if the first trimester baby can be identified as having a identity and the second trimester baby is capable of physically reacting to their presence then both are not only existing but are recognized as having value. We can also cross-reference this in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20 where the angel explaining to Gabriel and or the angel explaining to the angel was Gabriel to the parents of the child you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save their people from their sins. So noting this recognition of identity in the New Testament. We go back to the Old and we further contextualize this. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 1, and Psalm 51 and verse 5, we note the recognition of people having spiritual callings and moral culpability before they were formed in the womb. We can also note in Psalm 139 verses 13 through 16, the uh, prophet David, that making this observation, as the beginning of First Kings note, under inspiration of the Spirit, to have had what? Been formed in his womb and to be known by God. God doesn't know non-existent things. He knows potential things, and those things do have value, and he also knows present things, which have the same value. If we make the argument that's not a baby, that's a potential baby, well, you have some I guess reconciling to do with plain statements in scripture. We can go on and note which is
2: also kind of a ridiculous statement that 's like calling a child a potential adult. you know all you're doing is you're taking a human life at a particular level of development and saying you're not a human being yet you're a potential child because you 're not as developed as I want you to be. Well, I could look at my daughter and be like well you 're not a child you're a potential child you're not there yet you're still you know a toddler uh you're not a, you're not a teenager you're a potential teenager no 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 she is in the stage that she needs to be in, right? It's not a potential human life. It is a human life at a level of development and in a location that it needs to be in for that level of development.
1: Yeah, you can say I may never reach the potential of an adult, but that doesn't make me less prone to human rights. That just means I'm immature and need growing up. Right. (laughs) Uh, And again, we can go on. Exodus 21, 22 through 23 notes that the taking of a life of a preborn child causing a miscarriage through violence bears the Constitution and same consequence as murder, and on it goes. But the point, I think, has been made. If we call ourselves Christians, we cannot claim that we have a love for the truth and willfully remain ignorant on this to avoid sticky conversations. If we side with legislations and organizations and government that would promote these sort of things we cannot call ourselves Christians. We will answer for that. But if, on the other hand, we want to be consistent with our worldviews, then as we state regularly on the broadcast, there should be only two things that are non-negotiables as far as who we vote for and why, the first of which is this. If you want more information about what Roe v. Wade actually is and how it's repealing as a federal Legislation is in fact inaccurate as far as removing and making abortion illegal, then please let us know. We'll be happy to provide you information and resources for you to educate yourself. But if you remain willfully ignorant on this, understand that you are neglecting an incredible ministry opportunity, not only for others, but for yourself, because you never learn more than when you have to answer for what you believe. That is when your beliefs become your own fewer and fewer rooms for cowards in the church today and we need to be ready for it.
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick just to kind of put a pin in this uh, I'm reading through second Kings right now just finished it last night. Great book, definitely a very tragic book, but very interesting and because I think the reign of Josiah illustrates two things that we could take away from this and really illustrate what, we're, what me and Sean have been talking about for the last half hour. Uh, first of all, Josiah was a really good king and through legislation, he maneuvered the country in a very positive way. So he was a good king, and he was taking over after one of the worst kings that Israel had ever had. And through the implementation of various legislation that he had, it actually had a really effective of uh, very beautiful effect on the nation of Israel and it made it develop and change in a really cool way. Uh, Now unfortunately he had a very short reign and then they kind of went back to their wickedness but you cannot deny the effectiveness of Josiah's reign. Next very important, when Josiah was communicated to through a prophet the prophet specifically told him you're doing great but God cannot forgive a very specific sin that had happened under the the guy uh, Manasseh, the king Manasseh And that was the shedding of innocent blood. He said, the blood of the innocents cry out to me and I will avenge them. Very haunting verse when you think about it in that way, that it was infant sacrifice that God was talking about and judging the people of Israel for. So just some food for thought.
1: All right, going out to our questions. Uh, this is from Yari, who wants to know, how should we handle false teachers or movements or et cetera if they support good causes? So in light of, and as a follow up, well, this ministry supports this, um, I guess, cause that is working on repealing abortion at a federal level. So Does that mean that we should support them in everything that they say because one of the things they say is good?
2: No, uh, no, so... We need to be very nuanced about this on every level. You know, there might be a ministry that I agree with on 90% of things, you know, but if they disagree with me on 10%, well, how severe is that 10%? Great example of this would be Mormons. Uh, Mormons are very pro life. I really love the work that they do, and, you know, they, they work a lot with the family. They, they try to push things for the family. That's why Utah is so unbelievably conservative, right? So I could agree with the Mormons and all those things, and I could even join hands with them to move forward and accomplish these goals while still disagreeing with them on these other very important topics. So uh, it's very cool. I remember when Mitt Romney ran for president back in 2012. Uh, That was a major issue for me, the fact that he was a Mormon. But again. Looking back on it as being a more mature adult at this point, I didn't vote for him because of that. I didn't vote for him because he was a Mormon. But looking back on it, I would have voted for him because I could say, well, I, I definitely agree with his moral views and his ethical views as president, even though I think that his beliefs theologically are terrible. I think he believes in a false Jesus and a false gospel, and I think that that ministry is bringing a lot of people away from God, not towards him. But I can say both things at the same time. We don't have to pick and choose and <laughs> say, like, either either I agree with you 100% or I disagree with you 100%. Well, and the good news is he went back on that
1: position. So yeah. I guess you are got a clean conscience. Yeah, yeah,
2: he's not not the greatest guy. We've He's, shown us, he's shown us true colors for sure.
1: Well, again, yeah. what does Jeremiah say? Woe to the man who puts his faith in man. We'll, right. we'll, <laughs> we'll let Jeremiah 17.5 be our... Uh, our life verse. In yeah, the this Mormons day.
2: don't even like him very much right now. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. What can you do? All right. Here's a interesting one. There's hypotheticals and examples in here, but I think this is the crux of the issue. Let me know if there's more to this, Nina, but regarding the issue of the fall being associated with food, what is the significance of that in regards to the new heaven and the new earth? And of course, uh, eating something in a sense, that would be destroyed is that in and of itself a reflection of the fall so i guess we can split this into two parts first of all in regards to what about the fall resulted in the fall was it the action or was it the association it's eating evil yeah and then the second thing is how will we uh, I guess the idea of plants being perishable, being digestible, being in these sort of regards, how do we properly contextualize that in a biblical sense without talking out of both sides of our mouths? Uh, Let me start with the basics. Uh, Nina, the fall wasn't to eat anything. In fact, if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, they were encouraged to eat from all trees in the garden. The eating wasn't the issue. It was the fact that God made a prohibition. The terms of their relationship was with one and only one law to violate that law wasn't to eat something. It was to disobey God. It was to sever that relationship. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, the desire wasn't because me hungry and I have no other options. It's not harvest yet and that's the only fruit that's available. No, it was the fact that God had said you shall not eat it lest you die. They understood the consequences. They understood the fact that their relationship with God had no reason to doubt or question him, but they chose to anyway. That was the fall. The severance of relationship wasn't in their belly. It was in their hearts. Right. But then the question is asked, and we see, uh, I guess, we use the example of carrots going bad both in and outside of the body. I got some in my fridge, and sometimes they sprout little hairs and stuff, and I, I still eat them because I have low standards. But the <laughs> point being made is this. When it comes to the function and fashion of fruits being able to be eaten, is that not an example of the fall or is death for a plant different for a Death of a prokaryotic life form. (laughs) (laughs) Or a eukaryotic, excuse me. (laughs)
2: Yeah, very good question. So what we know for a certainty is that death was not a part of the original creation. So it is very different when you're talking about uh, vegetables because vegetables do require some some amount of death. You have to pull something up by the roots in order to eat it. So a carrot is something, it's it's a root. You have to pull it out, and that's why it dies when you do that. Uh, And that's why also you don't see Adam and Eve eating animals in the Garden of Eden. They were eating fruit because fruit is the one thing that you can eat that actually doesn't require something to die. In fact, fruit is a way for plants to procreate. So that being said, in understanding that, would it be feasible for God to create plants that grow fruit, that what we would understand today as fruit, that taste like Vegetables and meat and things like that within the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, that's feasible for God to do. That's not really a big deal at all. Now, we know for a fact that eating is definitely a part of the new heavens and new earth. There is specifically a tree mentioned, the tree of life, and it is specifically said to be fruit bearing. Jesus also ate in his resurrected body. So we know that that will be a part of the resurrected existence. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I do think the question is hinting at something very important. Is there significance to the fact that that the tree was producing a fruit. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was producing a fruit and they ate of it. So for instance, why wouldn't it be like a sign or something like that? Or why wouldn't they have to actually commit an evil action like, uh, you know, strangle a bunny or something like that? Why Why would they have to actually eat of this tree and that's what kind of, sorry for that image. <laughs> Those of you guys with queasy stomachs and love bunnies. Uh, but you know, why this specific action, what's going on there? And when you look through the Bible, this metaphor of eating is actually used quite a bit. Uh, for instance, you and your dad just went over this a couple weeks ago in the book of Revelation, where John is actually ordered to eat a book, Mm -hmm. uh, which referenced, was was an allusion to Ezekiel having to eat a scroll in his own prophetic ministry. Exactly, a direct quote from the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus in John chapter 6, talking about people eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, obviously talking about people eating. And Jesus had a lot of miracles about eating right? so uh, the feeding of the 5,000 the turning of water to wine at the wedding at Cana right so eating and drinking are definitely part and parcel to how we understand Christianity for sure they're deep metaphors and when you think about the process of eating it makes sense why is food so important why is it such an important symbol because when you eat something you're taking it into yourself it is an action in which you're not only enjoying something but you're enjoying something because it's becoming a part of you So the ancient Israelites always saw it this way. This is why one of the reasons why they refused to eat with people who weren't kosher. It's because there was this idea there that we're all eating the same food. It's all going into our bodies. And if you're unclean, then it's almost like I'm partaking. I'm actually ingesting some of your uncleanness as we're sharing the same food. It's kind of a radical thought process, but that's how they were thinking, that what you take into your body – actually matters, right? It actually has an effect on you. And it was kind of this whole body enjoyment. It's one of the few pleasures that we can enjoy as human beings. That's a whole body experience. You see it, you touch it, there's a texture to it, there's a taste to it. And it actually fills you in a very interesting sense as well. So because of that, God uses it as a metaphor for ingesting things in their totality. So when Jesus is talking in John chapter 6, you could read his entire diatribe if you want, but it's very clear the reason why he's using this as a metaphor, and he, by the way, this is an explanation for why he performed the miracle of feeding them in the first place, is because he's saying, you've got to take all of me, right? You can't just take a little. You can't sample me. You can't just touch me. You've got to actually ingest me. You've got to really make it a part of you in your existence and in your being going forward. You cannot just have a little bit of Christianity. Uh, Same with Ezekiel. Man, you can't just look at this stuff... (laughs) Like it's gonna become a part of you. You're gonna it's gonna be a part of your being. You're gonna teach it. It's gonna be coming out of you when you when you minister to other people. Very and there's a lot of cool things that we could talk about when it comes to ministers and have you actually taken in the word before you're uh, talking about it, things like that. But if they don't like it, they won't like you, it's one and the same. That's right, that's right. So I think you're you're definitely on to something. There was a reason as to why the original sin was personified through eating of a particular tree. And there is a reason, and that reason is shown metaphorically throughout the entire text of the scriptures. Also, you had to eat the sacrifice, right? So in the Old Testament, when you sacrifice an animal for your sins, you ate it. So. Like I said, it's a string that goes through the entire Bible. Very, very cool. Interesting Bible study if you want to go through it in more detail, Nina. But thanks for the question. Yeah,
1: and again, further details on that will come and go on their own. But let's just clarify that. Eating isn't the issue. It's the disobedience to God that is. As far as the picture, it's not just what you eat or if you eat, but what you or why you're eating it. Right. So note that point. Um, here's a interesting question. We haven't uh, done our contradiction of the day in recent days, at least. Uh, This one, again, this is coming from an atheist website. This one I actually would give them a little bit of credit for because we have to dig a little bit more into the language. The first is the claim in Genesis 25 and verse 1 that notes Keturah, is abraham's abraham's excuse me wife but in first chronicles chapter 1 and verse 32 it notes her as his concubine so there are actually some areas of concern here because when we say a concubine we're referring to essentially just a girl that exists in the household um that's uh, first chronicles let me 25 uh, 22 right this would be oh lost my place there uh one in verse 32 but um, the concern is, okay, is a concubine a wife? Well, they have, quote-unquote, marital privileges, but you only exist for the gratification of your physical body. As far as a wife, well, there are legal connotations to that. And even during Abram's time, Abraham was his name later known, there was a difference between a wife and a concubine, both in a legal sense, and a social sense, in a <laughs> any other sense you want to put it, just the one thing they had in common was they had sexual privileges with the husband. Now, is this a contradiction? Does the author First Chronicles, uh, I guess, mistake uh, Abraham's wife as Keturah when the only wife that is identified,
2: at least till the time of her death (spoiler alert) was Sarah? Uh, yeah. So that's First Chronicles one verse thirty-two. Now the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine, were Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak. And Shua. So we do have a very specific term used, concubine. Now, So we're just going to do our homework a little bit and make sure that they got the quotes right, because sometimes they don't. So in Genesis 25, does it indeed say that um, Keturah was a wife and not a concubine?
1: Well, it says Abraham again took a wife. I wonder where he found her. Uh (laughs) And her name was Keturah. And she bore him. It goes on to mention a few other names than that were relevant in First Chronicles, but this is noting the
2: lineage of the tribes of Judah. Right. So you're already kind of pointing is out like one of the ways that we can look at it, where obviously Abraham didn't just run into her at the supermarket. So, you know, he's grieving over Sarah, and he's walking around. He's like, "Oh, my name's Keturah," and then he he marries her. In that culture, it was uh, very. Widely practiced and accepted to have concubines so you had your wife and then you also had these women that you wouldn't give marital rights to but you were able to have sexual practices with them and we see Abraham do this with Hagar. And uh, it wouldn't really be too crazy to believe that he was doing it with other women as well.
1: Well, and you even go all as far as the time of Rome in the first century. Mm-hmm. And there were essentially these distinctions, not just for children and their rights to inheritance, but the only way you would supersede just being a child of the family was through adoption. Right. If you had a wife that was a legal recognition to the Roman government, and we can note this through their annals, that <coughs> these children are to legally inherit my estate. But the wives of his concubines or his prostitution visits, if they were to have children, it would be considered illegitimate, and they'd have words for it, which I won't repeat on the air, that would just invalidate them with any association with the family. The government recognized that. It was a horrible thing, but it was indeed a thing. If we go back to the Mesopotamian era, which is, again, 2000 BC, around the time of Abraham and his time period, we can look at other text, like the Egyptian and the Babylonian chronicles, that note their practices, even going as early as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and those sort of practices in the contemporary culture that he was in. Right, side note. Yeah.
2: The Bible acknowledges that these guys did these things. It never approves of it. <laughs> yeah, just because a guy did yeah. something doesn't mean
1: it's a good thing, right. we ask, is this honest history? And that right. honest history admits the bad stuff. That's right. But uh, again, we're talking about whether or not it is irreconcilable. It is canceling out the fact that Keturah was Abram's wife as opposed to his concubine. Mm -hmm. The transition of titles is possible, and we can check that as occurring, not just in this text, but in others. But for the sake of argument, let's just say, well, Abram was from and following a God that only allowed you one wife at a time. So was it Keturah or was it Sarai, later renamed Sarah? Well, again, let's go one verse back in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 67, where it says, Then Isaac brought her... Uh, to his mother sarah's tent then he took rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her so isaac was comforted after his what mother's death right then for some reason after his mother's death mother of isaac who was the son of abraham the legitimate child inheriting the spiritual right, right. by sarah what happened after sarah died keturah became his wife yeah she was already there as we see in first chronicles
2: and it makes sense so in first chronicles what you have is you basically just have a genealogy going all the way back from adam so you have this very long genealogy in the beginning of this book that's leading you up to king david and his rule within the the nation of israel very important that it's incredibly condensed and because of that if i'm reading first chronicles What do I need to know about Keturah? He doesn't have the time to go into Abraham's whole sexual history. So he calls her a concubine so you understand that there was an illegitimacy to her sons inheriting the same kind of promises that was promised to Isaac, right? So Isaac was the child of the promise. There's an importance in understanding that. So the author here just is like, she's the concubine. Because for the sake of what they're talking about, the genealogical rights of the children going from Adam to Abraham moving in. Why are we not going to follow these guys anymore in the in the genealogy? Why aren't we following Zimram? Why aren't we following Jokshan? Because they're not a part of the promise. Isaac is a part of the promise. So we're moving through him and understanding his lineage. We don't care about them anymore because it doesn't serve the narrative that this person is presenting. In Genesis, The author has a little bit more liberty because he has a little more room to do that, right? So he's able to talk about Abraham's whole history so you understand, oh, okay, and then he married Keturah. So it's easier for him to do that. That's why he uses that title. For the purposes of Chronicles, he would use the word uh, concubine.
1: So, just to go through our routine here, what do we do whenever someone says a contradiction? First, call their bluff, go to the text, and usually you only have to go one verse prior to maybe contextualize this a bit more. That was your exhortation. The second is to clarify, what is a contradiction? It's a fancy, multi-syllable word that people like to throw around. You hear it in our outreaches all the time. Isn't it a contradiction when really they mean difference? Contradiction is a violation of the second law of formal logic, that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. Could Abraham have remarried? Could Abraham have had two wives? Could Abraham have had a wife who was legally, for the sake of a historical record of Israel, been just referred to as a concubine? It's not impossible to reconcile. But if you set up an inaccurate definition of contradiction, then you end up where we started at the beginning of the broadcast with an inaccurate understanding of Roe versus Wade. We want to be lovers of truth, not lovers of a lie. We don't want to be stumbled by people who don't bother to read or would at least set this up in such a way where it really ends up being inconsequential because let's just pretend. Let's grant the thesis. Okay, a text renders her as a concubine as opposed to a wife. Keturah was not Abram's concubine. She used to be. She's now his wife. What does that have to do with Jesus' biological death and his spiritual and physical resurrection? not much. So make sure that if we go on these rabbit trails it ultimately and effectively brings us back to the person of Jesus Christ I think we'll be fine. So with that said, we'll go out again and we'll look forward to answering more of your questions as you send them in. Uh, This is a question regarding um, let me uh, get these in their entirety so we uh, don't end up wasting more time summarizing I suppose. Question for you Peter, uh, regarding what kind of choices do I need to make about the kind of movies or media that I let into my life? What uh, should govern my entertainment decisions as a Christian?
2: Yeah, very good question, and one that we have to take a little time. It's something I'm kind of studying right now in my own personal life. So, uh, we You got three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just to condense a lot of information down very rapidly and very quickly some people would say that when when it comes to media the purposes of consuming media is essentially null and void so some christians throughout the ages have said that any type of media entertainment is kind of like a it's not really good it's not really bad so going back to the greeks they thought of good things in three different categories there are inherent goods things that are good in and of themselves uh so you know you don't have to give a reason other than the thing itself for doing it why do i tell the truth because it's good to tell the truth right i don't have to allude to any other reason other than that there are things that are good but they're only good for their benefit in and of themselves they're not very good so taking medicine is a good example Um, the taking of medicine is only good because it produces a good result the medicine in and of itself is not good the third type of good which is the least good type of good (laughs) is something that is fun but it doesn't actually do anything profitable for you. So like eating cotton candy or something like that. It's fun, it's good, but it's actually bad for you and it doesn't really do anything beneficial for you. The only benefit is in the fact that it's pleasurable. Uh, That's the least good kind of good. The Christians throughout the ages have usually put beauty in that third category where it's not really good, it doesn't do anything beneficial for you, but it's pleasurable and therefore we do it. That is very different than the way that the Greeks thought, and it's very different than the way that some of the earlier Christians thought, and now it's coming back into vogue nowadays, which I think is really exciting. So the earlier Christians thought the way that the Greeks did, that beauty is actually an inherent good that when we look at things that excite us, that move us emotionally, those are things that are beneficial for us. They help us understand the inner man better. They help us understand the way that we interact with other people better. It de-centers our ego, meaning that when we are in the presence of something greater than ourselves that we find beautiful and attractive, it makes us stop thinking about self and it moves us into a frame of mind that's a little bit more person-oriented as opposed to self-oriented. And I could go on and on with a couple more benefits from observing beauty. Media, right At the time that the early Christians were writing, it's obviously plays and books. But that kind of entertainment was seen to be in this category. That when we see plays, when we see books, we're actually engaging with someone's view of the inner man. And this person doesn't necessarily have to be Christian in order for it to benefit us. For two reasons. Number one, because they're made in the image of God, part of their insights will reflect Christian values. The second reason is that... Because this thing is giving a different perspective that's non-Christian, it could help us understand people who aren't Christian and therefore minister to them better. Now, there are certain things that we need to establish. I don't have time to get into them. Maybe tomorrow you guys can get into them. But uh, certain basic principles, one would have uh, gratuitous type of examples. So for instance, is it okay to see a movie that has violence? Well, The Passion of Christ is an awfully violent movie. However, the violence isn't gratuitous, meaning the violence serves a purpose for the narrative and helps, in, uh, helps you understand the sacrifice of Jesus in a better way. When it comes to sexuality, is it gratuitous? Is it something that goes above and beyond what's necessary? and something that moves my heart in a direction that is exploitative to the actor and the actress that are performing the scenes, as well as something that would move my heart towards lust. So these are some of the questions that we can throw back and forth. It's an interesting question, though, for sure. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time.
0: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope.